You got to get the team of uh, editing elves out and chop that down to <laughs> keep this episode under three hours. Hey, Rockers. Welcome back to Extra Credit, the Rocky Podcast. I'm Seth Hinckley, your esteemed co-host, sitting here with the George Thorogood to my Jeff Simon, the leader of the doodads, Mr. Matt Black. Hello, Seth. I'm already trying to guess what your reference means, but I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> or I'll find out soon enough, won't I? You don't know who George Thorogood is? Oh, I do is? know who George Thorogood is. I can't imagine what song you're referring to ah, okay. or why you picked it. We'll All right, see. dude. Well, what we'll are see. you wearing today? Today, once again, as I did recently, I'm wearing my Bob Marley Live t-shirt. Nice. So. I'm sporting my Beatles t-shirt, oh, which I, you're probably going to be happy about. All right. I, I wonder I wonder what that means for our top five list. I could have worn a Beatles t-shirt today, too. Well, what's our top five list today? Today, we are talking about our top five songs, which refer to other songs. Okay. Something I really like. I like to hear echoes and see threads. Yeah. So. All right. Over, under, especially taking into account the shirts. <laughs> now that you're wearing a Beatles t-shirt, I'm going to go, I'll pick the over, under at one and a half, and I'll take the over. You're going to take the over? I'm going to take the over. I'm pretty convinced that at least one we're going to share I and think, the other one. I think if it's at one and a half, I'm going to take the under. All right, fair. Because I think we're going to have at least just one, because I don't think the rest of these on my list are going to We'll see. are going to we'll end see. up on yours. Very possible. We'll see. I'm going to let you go first so I can have the last word this time. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> so that's good. I, I, don't, I, don't, I never remember whose turn it is, but uh, I'll start off with criteria, though. Pretty simple. Songs that refer to other songs. I didn't have anything more complicated than that. Okay. Yeah. Usually you have more I know, rules this one was than basic. that. <laughs> uh, I, I was looking for songs that quoted other songs musically or lyrically, but bonus points if they actually did both. Interesting point I was going to bring up later, yeah. And yeah. I didn't have any songs that were simply medleys mm-hmm. or that just used samples. So there's Definitely no so sampling. many songs that just sample right. other songs right. and try and use that as the base of that song, and I left those off. Well, since you brought that up, I was <clears> going to say it didn't occur to me till after I had made my top five list to consider songs that refer to other songs only musically, so all my songs do it lyrically. Okay. But I was planning to bring that up with a an example I like, and I'm glad that you've already considered it. So we'll see what you get. All right. So your number my number five. five. Okay. I give you. I'm going to give you a twofer. Same uh, artist. Oh, wait, same wait, artist. Wait, 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 wait. Same Are you ar- trying to get six? Nope, no, no, no. This is pretty basic. <laughs> same artist refers to his own song in two other of his songs. Okay. That's fair, right? Uh, I guess so. Okay. Well, here's an interesting interesting question. Should we refer to the original song first or the, the song that refers to the other song? I think song? you have to refer to the song that refers first. to the other okay. song so that we know which song we're going to go listen Fair. to on the Spotify list because that <laughs> Spotify list is going to be it's really be long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. My two songs at the number five spot are Seven Days by Sting during his solo career yeah. and Oh My God from Synchronicity from The Police. In both okay. of these songs, he reprises his lyric from Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. Yeah. It's a big enough umbrella, but it's always me that ends up getting wet. Right. Which is a nice, pithy way of summarizing a certain kind of relationship. And I couldn't find much about Sting having uh, a particular reason for doing this. I think he just wrote a good lyric and was proud of it and wanted to recycle it. <laughs> so, yeah. or, or, or call back to it for some reason that he never talked about. So that's three songs. Once again, Seven Days from Ten Summoner's Tales, his solo al- one of his solo albums. Right. Oh My God from Synchronicity, back to Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic from Spirits in the Material World. The song actually originates long before The Police, though. Like many of the early Police songs, 
Sting wrote this song before the police were formed, maybe with a particular combination in mind to perform it. But this song was actually released as a demo track by a band called Strontium 90. And Strontium was, 90... Was he in that band? Well, Strontium 90 is a significant band because it created the police. So Sting and Stuart Copeland knew each other from having collaborated as sidemen on multiple projects. And they were invited by another guy whose name I have forgotten um, <laughs> to form a band called Strontium 90. And he had a guitarist in mind. And that guitarist was Andy Summers. Oh, wow. Thus, the police were born. There's a long story with another guitarist who got kicked out of the band. We won't even get into that. But uh, so the demo existed <coughs> and it was mostly piano. Uh, it was just piano and, you know, some okay. stuff. And Sting brought this to the band when they were going to do <coughs> Spirits in the Tear World. And Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers hated it. Like, this is not a police song. He kept trying to force it on him. He kept trying to say, no, this is a good, this is a good song. This is a song that'll be a hit. Just try playing over the demo. So he played them the demo, yeah. and the take that Stuart Copeland did on drums actually ended up being the take they used on the recording. Same with Andy Summers. They just basically played over it, and that was it. And it's true, the guitar is super minimal. There's really yeah. nothing in that song. The instrumentation is mostly piano, played by a guy named Jean Roussel, who is from, I have already forgotten which French-speaking Caribbean island, but <laughs> uh, uh, it'll come to me or I'll look it up later. Again, Stuart and Andy did not appreciate this, but it really does work beautifully. The song is incredible with that piano part and Stuart Copeland's drum track makes that song like what he oh, does yeah. is incredible yeah. with that so again I don't think the lyric is all that significant but I do like the way that it comes up not just once but twice more in Sting's catalog and here's just a little tidbit for you as a drummer the song Seven Days is in 5-4 time yeah Seven should Days be, is should be 7-4 <laughs> <laughs> it should be 7-4 your number 5 my number 5 is a recycle from an earlier episode but it's got three musical references in it so I couldn't leave it out. It's Grade 9 by the Bare Naked Ladies nice one. on their debut album, Gordon, from 1992. I brought it up in our Funny Songs episode a long time back, and I asked if anyone could give me the three musical references in the song, and my friend Catherine from Houston she came through it. and nailed all three of them. So the references are Tom Sawyer, and these are all on guitar. The, ref the guitar references are Tom Sawyer, The Spirit of Radio, and then there's a keyboard reference to Linus and Lucy by the Vince Guaraldi Trio. And it's a really funny song. It's a great tune. But those three references in there, you can't mistake them. They're not buried in the mix. They're right up front. I, I love the way those guys have fun with music, have fun with their entire recorded catalog, but pushing in the other stuff that they had and their influences and adding them into the song because they loved it so much. I think that's awesome. That is cool. That's a good one. So what's your number four? All right. I'm wearing my Marley t-shirt. Could have worn my police t-shirt, but I'm wearing my Marley t-shirt <laughs> because uh, my number four is the song Master Blaster by Stevie Wonder. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the song. subtitle is Jammin'. Yeah. And he said specifically he wrote this song as a tribute to Bob Marley. This yeah. is how we know he did it because he said it about a million times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Jammin' is a popular Bob Marley song. The two were actually friends, which I didn't know until I was looking into this song. And they had actually organized a fundraising concert in 1975 called the Wonder Dream Concert. Wow. Yeah. Well, I didn't know about this. And I didn't know about that Also, either. that was the last time that Bob Marley ever played with Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh, which I also didn't know. Wow. And they performed together a few times. I couldn't verify this. 
this, but I found suggestions on the web that Stevie Wonder and Eric Clapton were the only two artists where Bob Marley ever appeared on stage in their shows. Mm. He brought other guests up, but he only appeared as a guest on those two artists' shows, in those two artists' concerts. So that was a pretty significant relationship. So much so that Stevie Wonder got into reggae and did some producing. He wrote this very reggae-themed song as a tribute to, or very reggae-flavored song, excuse me, as a tribute to Bob Marley. The songs are similar. If you listen to them together, you can see how they relate to each other, but there's no direct quote. But there's a real reggae feel. The drummer is a guy named Dennis Davis. Both songs open yeah. with a similar fill. And there's a lyric, Marley is hot on the box, meaning he's you know loud on the radio or loud yeah. on the on the boombox. And the chorus is, uh, didn't you know we'd be, we'd be jamming till the break of dawn? I bet nobody ever told you that we'd be jamming till the break of dawn. You'd be jamming and jamming and jamming. So jamming until the break of dawn is a riff on jamming in the name of the Lord, which is from Bob Marley's yeah. tune, jamming. Yeah. Marley is said to have reacted. It sound good, man. Yeah, Masta Blasta. It's nice, you know. <laughs> That's a man a few words outside of, outside of his lyrics, exactly. Yeah. There is just a little hidden Easter egg in here. I mentioned that Stevie Wonder got into producing reggae bands or some reggae bands, and he produced and wrote for a band called Third World, which I had never heard of until now. Yeah. He references Third World in the lyrics, which you might not notice because it sound, it's no. a hidden reference. He said, uh, There's a lyric that goes, I got to put my glasses on here. Peace has come to Zimbabwe, Third World's right on the one. Ah, uh, but okay. Third World refers to, to the, band. the band and obviously on the one is a musical reference right yeah so master blaster james jammin'. brown yeah exactly yeah. master blaster jammin referring to jammin by bob marley awesome what's your number four my number four is one of these days by pink floyd interesting off of metal from okay. 1971 waiting to hear this one the song musically quotes the theme from doctor who the popular TV series in Britain at just after the three minute mark on the original recording. Now, you have to listen really hard to hear the, and I don't know exactly what the instrument is, but it's the theme from Doctor Who that you hear. Evidently, the guys in the band were big Doctor Who fans, and allegedly, they would stop recording when they were recording <laughs> this album to go watch Doctor Who when it came on, <laughs> and then they'd get back in the studio. They did it as an homage to the show, and there's only one line of lyrics in this song, which is, one of these days, I'm going to cut you into little pieces. <laughs> and when they recorded it, they used the same effect machine as was used for the dialogue for the Daleks in the Doctor Who TV show. On the live versions, on a few live versions of this song, especially the one on Delicate Sound of Thunder from 1988, it's so much easier and you hear the full theme because they kind of, it's it's in the background, but it's pushed a little bit further front in the mix. So you, if you really want to hear it, go listen to that live version of Delicate Sound of Thunder. Now, one of the really interesting things about this is the folks at Doctor Who actually returned the favor. Cool. On the Doctor Who episode, The Caretaker, the 12th Doctor whistles another brick in the wall, part two, <laughs> while in front of the Coal Hill School, which is, you know, a great reference. And then in the episode, The Woman Who Lived, the Doctor plays Wish You Were Here on his electric guitar. One references the TV show theme, and then the TV show came back and twice referenced Pink Floyd. Nice. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've never seen a Doctor Who episode. I'll really? Check out those. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least now you've you got can... me. Now you've got me, giving me a reason to go check them out. So. And you should listen to one of these days. I definitely to will. To pick up the yeah. theme. 
cool. What's your number three? My number three. I could have gone a bunch of different directions with this band. You knew there was going to be a Beatles track on this list. And I, uh, uh, we'll have to see if it's a ding, ding, ding situation. Let's see. Could have gone a bunch of different ways, but my number three is Glass Onion. Uh, the Beatles. Not the same one? Not the same oh, one. Okay, okay. Well, I might I might have lost my bet on the over then. <laughs> uh, I think I lost my bet on the under. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Wait, wasn't it one and a half? You can't yeah, lose. Yeah, I can't lose. You okay. can't lose. So Glass Onion refers pretty much by title to five other Beatles songs and has yeah. other references to other Beatles songs. So Strawberry Fields Forever, I'm the Walrus, Lady Madonna, The Fool on the Hill, and Fixing a Hole are all mentioned in the lyrics of Glass Onion. Yeah. And the song is actually about the Beatles songs. It's not just, they're not hidden references. John Lennon is talking to his listeners about the songs that he's written. Yeah. And really what it is, is he's saying, stop working so hard to try find meanings in these things. I'm just having fun with the language. Yeah. There is no, like all these things have obscure reference. And by the way, funnily enough, Three of these songs that he references are actually McCartney written songs, but that's a whole other thing. And there's also <laughs> there's also threads, uh, layers, if you will, of an onion, because yes. Lady Madonna refers also refers to I am the walrus, and I am the walrus refers to Lucy in the sky with diamonds. So you got a whole bunch of layers. Yeah, onions like have an layers. Onion. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's glass because he wants you to see through it. He wants it. you to see through it, right? Exactly. And by the way, there is such a thing as a glass onion. It refers to a particular kind of bottle that was made for ships in England in the I don't know pre-industrial era. Yeah. They had a wide base so they wouldn't fall off a table. Anyway, so in in the first verse, he says, "I told you about strawberry fields. You know the place where nothing is real." He's saying nothing is real. Don't take this so literally, yeah. people. Stop it. I'm not sure how many of our listeners know, but Lennon gave a very very famous interview with Playboy magazine in 1980 where he really talked about from a distance he talked about the Beatles mm -hmm. and this is the source material for most of what we think he thought because obviously he died young he was tragically killed yeah we don't have a record anymore. I mean, Paul McCartney's still around to talk about it. Ringo Starr's still around. And George Harrison died much, you know, much later. So we have to infer a lot of what John Lennon thought. So in 1980, he told Playboy magazine, the walrus was Paul, which was a line in the song. Yeah. He says, that's me just doing a throwaway line, a la the walrus, a la everything I've ever written. I just threw in the line, the walrus was Paul, to confuse everybody a bit more. And I thought the walrus has now become me, meaning I'm the one, only it didn't mean that in this song. And the interviewer said, why a walrus? And Lennon said, it could have been the fox terrier as Paul, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's just a bit of poetry. It was just thrown in like that. He did in 1971, in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, he did say that he included that particular lyric as a backhanded compliment to Paul for working hard to keep the Beatles together. But that's a side story we won't get into. John Lennon was famous for including incomprehensible lyrics, gobbledygook, words that just sounded together. This is a guy who wrote a book called In His Own Right, spelled W-R-I-T-E. He loved wordplay. It didn't have to make sense. And he's just telling everybody, just take it easy. I'll throw in a, another drummer Easter egg for you. Okay. If you can hear the song Glass Onion in your head, there's a repeated fill, which is really simple. Yeah. It's just basically uh, two hits on kick and snare that mm -hmm. before each verse. Keith Moon and Ginger Baker at the time were experimenting with double kick drum configurations. And Ringo's like, I got to have a double kick drum configuration too. And he had worked out this really complicated fill for the song. In his own words, paraphrasing, when he sat down behind the drum kit and had to play it, he froze. He didn't know what to do. So he just did this really simple, this really simple fill, which is perfect for the song. Glass Onion by the Beatles in my number three. What's your number three? My number three is a song that stands in for a number of others that are the same song. It's Who Do You Love by George Thorgood and the Delaware Destroyers. That song has been recorded by a number of other people, but... I love the George Thorogood version, so that's why I chose it. George quotes the Bo Diddley beat. 
Now, I always thought the Bo Diddley beat was named after Bo Diddley. Incorrect. Okay. It's named after the single that he named after himself. So, Do you know the name of the album it's on? Bo Diddley. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> George even name checks the Bo Diddley beat in his version in the lyrics to the song. It's in tons of other songs, including Not Fade Away by Buddy Holly and the Crickets. I Want Candy by The Strange Loves and later by Bow Wow Wow. Mr. Brownstone by Guns N' Roses. Faith by George Michael. American Girl by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Desire by U2. Coincidentally, before you move off, okay. I have a whole playlist of songs with the Bo Diddley beat, which yeah. was created for Rock U. I'll share that in the show notes. Nice. Yeah. Bo Diddley actually recorded Who Do You Love, but he didn't record it with the Bo Diddley beat. Huh. George Thorogood and the other groups that recorded Who Do You Love with the Bo Diddley beat are not copying Bo Diddley off of Who Do You Love. They're copying it off of Bo Diddley, the single. That quote, that musical quote gets used in tons of songs. And I had to put it on the list. And I was like, okay, that's where I'm going to put it. So that's my number three. Who Do You Love by George Thorogood and the Destroyers just for the Bo Diddley beat. Nice. I really like the fact that you use musical references. I didn't do that. And I'll have to come back to some of my honorable mentions. But yeah, it's, good. It was, it's very cool. It, I was really impressed by the musical references. There's, there's tons and tons of lyrical references. Yeah, but yeah. when you hear that that yeah. musical reference in the song. That's what makes your ears like, Yeah, up. exactly. A little recognition. You're like, wait a minute. Where's that? I heard that before. My my entries are getting longer and longer. My number two All right. is a big one. I've mentioned it on the podcast at least twice, but never in a top spot. It's Stan by Eminem. Ah, and, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned, I think, in the Creepy Songs podcast. I think I might have mentioned it in yeah. the Story Songs episode. Stan is Eminem at the height of his literary powers. This is basically a short novel, a short story, a novella. Yeah. It's written in, got to throw this one in there for some of our more erudite listeners. It's written in epistolary form, which is when characters exchange letters and that forms the text of the story. Right. It references three other songs at least. The most significant one probably is Eminem's own song, My Name Is Slim Shady, the real right. Slim Shady. There's a lyric that's quoted directly, I just drank a fifth of vodka, dare me to drive. But also the general tone of the original song where Slim Shady is this chaotic, violent character Stan, the protagonist, the anti-hero of the song Stan, right. appears to take that at face value. And by the way, I should step back a second here. Stan is the very disturbing, very dark song about an obsessed stalker fan who right. ends up doing some really bad stuff, which he describes in his letters to Eminem. Right. And Eminem has a revelation at the end that something he's actually seen on the news refers back to Stan. But anyway, Slim Shady in My Name Is says, Hi kids, do you like violence? Want to see me stick nine inch nails through each of one of my eyelids? Want to copy me and do exactly as I did? Try sit and get effed up worse than life is? And that's actually what Stan is doing. He is messing up his life by being increasingly out of control. Very disturbing. So that's, the I think, the main reference, but there's two other important references which I really like. The hook in the song is just a sample of the first verse of Thank You by Dido. Yeah. Eminem heard the lyric, but your picture on my wall reminds me that it's not so bad. And in yeah. his mind, he went to this guy, Stan, who's got posters of Eminem on his wall right. and is trying to use his fandom to find a place of comfort. However, Eminem superimposes a new bass line. The original key is major in the song by Dido. Eminem 
then it puts a, a new bass line, which the end of every hook creates some very ominous tritones. We've talked about tritones, yeah. the devil's interval. Creates some very ominous tritones, which tells you right from the beginning, this is going dark. The first letter that Stan writes to Eminem seems innocent enough, but this isn't going to stay good. You can just tell from those tritones. The last reference, and this is the one I like the best, this is what actually made me choose the song, is he references In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. Now, In the Air Tonight is famous for being the subject of an urban legend that Phil Collins watched someone drown and didn't do anything to stop it. That's a myth. He watched a guy watch somebody drown. He watched drown a guy watch someone drown. And right. didn't, do, didn't and do anything to stop it. The guy didn't do anything to stop it. Right. He allegedly invited well, him to the concert to sing that song to him. None of that's true. None of it is true. He has oh. said many times he was going through a divorce. He was bitter. He was angry, but he wasn't yeah. thinking about a particular scenario or any kind of thing that had happened. And Stan refers to the song. First of all, he slurs the name and gets it wrong. He says, in the air of the night. He says, you know the song by Phil Collins, in the air of the night, about that guy who could have saved that other guy from drowning, but didn't. Then Phil saw it all. And then at a show, he found him. That's kind of how this is. You could have rescued me from drowning. This is Stan talking to Eminem. Yeah. And I really like the fact that, first of all, he's referring to this urban myth about the song. Right. And second of all, he's talking about exactly what the urban myth is about, which is taking song lyrics literally or misinterpreting them and understanding them in a different way and acting on that false information. So it's just a really cool piece of work by uh, Eminem. It contributed a new word to the English dictionary, entered the word Stan in 2017, meaning both referring to the song and also an amalgamation of the word stalker and fan. And people uh-huh. say this all the time, you know, either positively or negatively, but it started out negatively. Oh yeah, that guy's my stan. He comes to every show or something like that. Or I'm, I'm a stan for you too, or whatever it is. Yeah. That's a word that came from this song. I will just also, just parenthetically, Dido was not just related by being sampled. She was actually involved. She was in the video for the song. She yeah, she plays the victim. Of I think st- they stan's performed victim. it at the Grammys They performed together. at the Grammys, but it wasn't her. It was Elton John. And this was, was important. It? Yeah, it was Elton John singing her parts because Eminem was embroiled in the late 90s, early 2000s. He was being described as being anti-homosexual, homophobic. And yeah. Elton John did this to basically stand up next to him. And I'm not sure that this is what specifically they had in mind, but the point is, don't take me so literally. Songs yeah. have unsympathetic narrators. It does not mean that the songwriter is the person who is the voice in the song. That's very important. We wouldn't want to be blamed for creating a work of art where the person in the work of art is not a good person. That would make literature and movies really boring. Yeah, it would. <laughs> he also performed it with Ed Sheeran at his uh, 2022 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. So the song has legs. It's a very important song, but it's also really cool. A little strange coda. Dido has a son born in 2011. His name is Stanley. Oh, wow. That's kind of messed up. But yeah. <laughs> she says it has nothing to do with the song. It's a name she always liked from childhood. The father also always liked the name for different reasons. Nothing to do with the song. What's your number two? My number two is my shirt. All You Need Is Love by the Beatles. It musically quotes the French national anthem in the intro, La Marseillaise which makes it appropriate for this show. Absolutely. And in the outro, it quotes five different songs. There's three musical quotes, one lyrical quote, and one lyrically musical quote because it gets sung. So this one's got every kind of quote that you can think of. The five songs that it quotes in the outro. The first one is the two-part invention number eight by Bach which gets, a, I think, two bars, maybe three. It also quotes In the Mood by Glenn Miller. 
And then John, because he's John, just threw in the word yesterday to refer to the song. And then it goes into Green Sleeves, which is the old standard English folk song that's heard in a lot of places, like hymns like What Child Is This? And oddly enough, I didn't know this until I looked this up about where Green Sleeves came from. In a lot of places in the English-speaking world, Green Sleeves is the tune you hear on the ice cream truck. No kidding. Yeah. I had no idea. (laughs) Me either. And then (laughs) at the very end, Paul sings, she loves you, yeah, 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 over the music for all you need is love. That's five musical quotes in one song. I was like, wow, that's probably going to be my number one. And then I did a little more research and found one that had more quotes. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. That's my number two, All You Need Is Love by the Beatles. It was on my honorable mentions. I went with Glass (coughs) Onion, but that was my choice. I was going to say that if it was going to be the one we were going to do, it was going to be All You Need Is Love. Now, I know, I don't know if you know the answer to this. I know, as you probably do, that All You Need Is Love was recorded live on the BBC, broadcast around the world. It was a live performance by, I want to say, almost all, if not all, of the band members. Maybe there were a couple that chose to do their stuff pre-recorded. I think George might have done his part pre-recorded. But I'm curious, was the outro also done live like that? Was all the stuff that you're talking about? I don't know if that was added on later or if it was recorded live. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. We'll talk about it in a future take, too. Okay, Ready for my number one? Ultimate pick for song that refers to other songs. What do you got? You thought I had a lot to say about five through two. Strap yourself in, because I got a lot to say about this one. First of all, I'm going to start right out front by saying this is a song I do not like. I am known for not liking this song. I am teased for not liking this song because it is one of the most requested songs by audiences in France. Can you guess what it is? Probably not because I'm assuming it's in English. Oh, it is in English. Well, okay. most of the songs that are requested by audiences in France are in English. Okay. Okay. It is Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard uh, Skinner. Yeah. And I'm not a fan of the song, although I do acknowledge it's a great song musically. Musically, it's musically. a great song. Yeah. And I also acknowledge, I think I brought it up I brought it up in a recent podcast as an honorable mention because it referred to- Neil Young? No, songs about real events because oh, real events, it refers yeah. to George Wallace standing in the uh, University of Alabama door. door. Exactly. Anyway, this song has a lot of layers. I'll try to tell the story briefly, but what, what are the chances? <laughs> Neil Young wrote two songs. At least you're honest about it. <laughs> Neil Young, Canadian, wrote two songs very critical of the civil rights record of the South in the early 70s. Southern Man in 1970 and Alabama in 1972. In Southern Man, he says, Southern Man, better keep your head. Don't forget what your good book said. Southern change going to come at last. Now your crosses are burning fast. And in Alabama, he says, Alabama, you got the weight on your shoulders that's breaking your back. Your Cadillac has got a wheel in the ditch and a wheel on the track. The members of Leonard Skinnerd, the writers of the song, Ronnie Van Zant, Gary Washington, and Ed King, none of them were from Alabama. No, they're all from Florida. Two of them are from Florida. One of them is from California. Okay. The rest of the oh, members, that's right. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. But between 1970 and 1972, in these <laughs> years when Neil Young was writing these songs, they were spending time in Alabama because of the famous Muscle Shoals Sound Studio, yeah. which had become super fashionable to record at. So everyone was, Paul Simon and the Rolling Stones and Linda Ross, they're all flying out of Muscle Shoals recording their albums at Muscle Shoals. I was at Muscle Shoals in 2016 in my big cross-country trip I did and it was closed. Like the studio looks the same from the outside but I couldn't go in to see it. You know why? It was being renovated. It was Ah. scheduled for, uh, I don't know about demolition but it was was in disrepair. It was being renovated. Do you know who gave the money to renovate it? And it's now a non-profit foundation. Neil Young? Dr. Dre. Oh, Dr. Dre? (laughs) Isn't that cool? Yeah. (laughs) So we walked in and the gift shop is still open and like, sorry, you can't go see the studio. We're fixing it up. Dr. Dre gave a whole lot of money to fix it. Wow. That was really cool. So another, yet another layer 
in the song. Anyway, Ronnie Van Zant was a huge Neil Young fan, but he didn't like the songs. And Neil Young himself said, I don't like my words when I listen to it today. He's talking about Alabama, not Southern Man. Talking yeah. about Alabama. Yeah. They are accusatory and condescending, not fully thought out, too easy to misconstrue. So, they write this response song. Well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her. Well, I heard old Neil put her down. Well, I hope Neil Young will remember. A southern man don't need him around anyhow. Now, these are famous lines. Yeah. And there's been a lot of controversy about the song. Was this a, really a defense of Alabama? Or was it just kind of like a, you know, piss off, mind your own business kind of thing? That's not too controversial, because that's just basically saying, hey, mind your own business. But the song gets controversial with a line about Governor George Wallace. One of his campaign slogans when he ran for president one of the four or five times he ran was segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. In the song, the lyric goes, in Birmingham they love the governor, and there's a background vocal, boo, boo, boo. Now, we all did what we could do. Again, was this a full-throated defense of Alabama, or was it a character study, or was it something else? Was it just a, you know, leave me alone? Ronnie Van Zant and Gary Rossington and producer Al Cooper all tried to walk it back, tried to say, no, 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 we weren't defending, we weren't defending the the civil rights record, we weren't supporting the governor, but there's a line in the, the main vocal of the chorus, where the sky is blue and the governor's true. So that kind of undercuts that a little bit. So they tried to walk it back. They tried to claim they weren't really supporting Governor Wallace. They tried to claim that they were the ones saying boo, boo, boo. Yeah, you know? that doesn't really sound doesn't like really, boo, boo, boo to me. It's ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, I mean, they, you know, it's written on the liner notes as boo, boo, boo. They said, well, we all did what we could do, meant we tried to work, get him out of office. We tried. That doesn't really hold water because in the final chorus, they say where well, the sky is blue and the governor's true. Right. And their co-writer, Ed King, disagreed. He wrote in 2019 or 2009, I can understand where the boo, boo, boo would be misunderstood. It's not us going boo. It's what the southern man hears the northern man say every time the southern man say in Birmingham we get, we love the governor. Get it? Right. We all did what we could do to get Wallace elected. It's not a popular opinion, but Wallace stood for the average white guy in the South and I loved him for it. I'm adding that last little bit because there's a lot of, lot more that he said, but that was the basic right, gist of yeah. it. There's not a, lot, a whole lot of ambiguity as much as Ronnie Van Zandt, if he were alive, would want us to think there was, or Al Cooper, the producer. It's pretty clear at the time, at least, they were kind of ba- on the side of, uh, of Governor Wallace in Alabama. A couple of footnotes First, the backup singers were Mary Clayton and Clyde King, both black singers. Yeah. Mary Clayton, we've talked about before from yeah. uh, Gimme Shelter, had a crisis of conscience. She wasn't going to do the song because she was so appalled by its politics. She said she let the music be her protest. I think for most working musicians, they got to get paid. She, yeah. she probably held her nose and did it. I'm not. I'm yeah. put, those are words I'm putting in her mouth. Maybe that's not fair. What's interesting, though, is Neil Young actually, as as the earlier quote sort of indicates, he kind of he kind of recanted. He kind of said, you know what? This wasn't really fair. He and Ronnie Van Sant became friends. They would wear t-shirts of each other on stage. And yeah. after the plane crash, which killed Van Sant and a couple other band members, he played a medley of Alabama and Sweet Home Alabama as a tribute. And he has never again played the song Alabama, his own right. song. The song has a life that lives on, though. The controversy lives on. Warren Zevon, who's from Chicago, uh, wrote a song, Played All Night Long. And he's got a lyric in that. Sweet Home Alabama, play that dead band song. Turn those speakers up full blast. Play it all night long. Also, the chords to Warren Zevon's biggest hit, Werewolves of London, are the exact same chords as the chords <laughs> of Sweet Home Alabama, and the two are frequently played as a mashup. Then, Drive By Truckers, a well-known progressive Southern band, yeah. covered Warren Zevon's song, and they added a verse that wasn't in the original song. It goes like this, and I've been around the world, and it ain't that pretty at all, so I'm going to throw myself against the wall. I'm going to hurl myself against the wall because I'd rather feel bad. I'd rather feel bad. I'd rather feel bad than not feel anything at all. 
Take that as you will. But they also wrote a song called Ronnie and Neil about the relationship between Ronnie Van Zant and Neil Young and how this song created it. And finally, just as a really odd coda, Kid Rock, famous conservative rocker from Michigan, I think. Yeah. Not from not from the South. But Definitely Michigan. Yeah. Um, he wrote a song called All Summer Long, which is not particularly political, but it samples Sweet Home Alabama and, wait for it, Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon <laughs> as the background for the song. Rob so, Ritchie ripping off other people's <laughs> music. Talk about layers. This song is a song that really has waves. It's of got a big history. It really does. And it goes into a lot of other music. What do you got for your number one? What bumped All You Need Is Love off your top list? Top, so top number one, spot? it's from a movie. It's the Elephant Love Medley from oh, nice. the movie Moulin Rouge. And it's littered with references. If you haven't seen the movie, it's a pretty good movie. For a musical, it's amazing. There's a song that is sung by Ewan McGregor and why is her name dropping out of my Nicole head? Kidman. Nicole Kidman, thank you. It's got musical and lyrical references to a bunch of different songs. And here's the list. Love is Like Oxygen by Sweet. Love, love is a Many-Splendored many Thing, which is a standard that was written by Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster. Up Where We Belong, made famous by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes. All You Need Is Love by The Beatles. Lover's Game by Chris Isaac. I Was Made For Loving You by Kiss. One More Night by Phil Collins. Pride in the Name of Love by U2. Don't Leave Me This Way by Thelma Houston, and then later by The Communards. Silly Love Songs by Wings. Heroes by David Bowie, I Will Always Love You, written by Dolly Parton, little Easter egg, on the same day that she wrote Jolene. Good day. Holy cow. <laughs> Talk about, that's like, that's a career that's day a for day. anybody yeah. else. Yeah. That's just a regular day for Dolly Parton. <laughs> that song was originally made famous by Whitney Houston. And then Your Song by Elton John. I couldn't think of another song that referenced that many other songs in it. It's not a medley because they work in different lyrics and different musical changes, but these are references to each of these songs, and they'll take a line from one or a line from another, and they use them in different spots, and sometimes it's the male character singing the line, and then later the female character sings the line, and then sometimes they do the opposite. It had to be top of the list. It has more references than anything else I could find. And in case you didn't remember, it's making our second. It's making its second appearance on one of our top five lists because when we did a movie soundtracks, that oh, soundtrack yeah. was my number five. Yeah, yeah, cool. Great choice. Great choice. Got some honorable mentions? I do have some honorable mentions. Sweet Home Alabama is on my honorable mentions list for all the reasons you stated. Major Tom by Peter Schilling. It's which, on my honorable mentions also. Yeah, which goes through and references uh, David Bowie's Space Oddity. Seven Days by Sting, which was your number five. You already went through. Love is the Seventh Wave by Sting, quotes Every Breath You Take by the Police at the oh, end. I missed that one. Talk by Coldplay. They don't sample this song, but they use the hook from Computer Love by Kraftwerk in the intro and the chorus. Cool. I got a lot of honorable mentions. I'll try to keep them brief. Okay. I told you I could have gone a bunch of different ways with the Beatles. One of them was my choice, Glass Onion. One of them was your choice, All You Need Is Love. A third one was Back in the USSR, which refers to Back in the USA by Chuck Berry. Yeah. California Girls by the Beach Boys. And George On My Mind by Ray Charles, but originally written by? I don't know. Willie Nelson. Ah. Another guy who has good good days that could be a whole career for someone else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also, uh, since we're on Beatles, there's a very sad song that references other songs in the post-Beatles solo career, which is John Lennon's track, How Do You Sleep? 
which is really right. a diss track of Paul McCartney. Right. He brings in the word yesterday as a lyric, but it really refers to the song. He says, you haven't done anything since yesterday, which, hello, John. Hey, Jude, let yeah. it be. A couple other tracks in there. A few other songs. Yeah. Got to throw this one in just because I love it so much, but man, is it not family friendly, is Anaconda by Nicki Minaj. Uh, yeah. Referring back to and sampling Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-a-Lot. Right. Um, Arctic Monkeys throw in some really good lyrics. Uh, when the Sun Goes Down just has a passing reference to Roxanne. I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor has a passing reference to Rio. And I can't not mention this one. The entire album, Exile in Guyville by Liz Fair, is considered by many people to be a song-by-song response to Exile on Main Street by right. the Rolling Stones. One I didn't know, but I was interested to find out that obviously there's Maggie Mae by Rod Stewart. I didn't know that Suzanne Vega has a song called I'll Never Be Your Maggie Mae. And it's a good song. Didn't make my top five, but it's a good one. Yeah. Flowers by Miley Cyrus is a response to When I Was Your Man by Bruno Mars and contains some of the same lyrics and chords. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. And this is another one I found that I didn't know. OK Go is a really funny band. I don't know if, a fun band. I don't know if you know them. They're yeah, better yeah, known yeah. for their videos. Yeah, the video people, where they do yeah. the uh, the treadmills, the, the treadmill video. Great, yeah. yeah, people. If you don't know OK Go and you need to kill three hours of your life, just go on YouTube. All their videos go are down brilliant. the rabbit hole. The songs are good, but the videos are brilliant. Yeah, like they, the there's nothing like them out there. But they have a song called "A Good Idea at the Time," which is a response to "Sympathy for the Devil" by the Rolling Stones. A couple others. "Put Your Records On" by Connie Bailey Ray refers to Three Little Birds" by Bob Marley. Oh. Um, "Deja Vu" by Olivia Rodrigo refers to "Uptown Girl" by Billy Joel. These are both references by name. We've already talked about Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus, which is not about specific songs, but about right. the Jay-Z yeah. song was on, the Britney song was on. Um, like they only have one. <laughs> <laughs> one that you'll like. I didn't know about this one either. I've never even heard of the artists. There's a song, a uh, uh, group called Coheed in Cambria. Do you know them? Yes. Okay. They have a song called Jesse's Girl 2. Right. Which is that Rick Springfield actually played on. He appears on. He's on the record. He's on it, which is a response to Jesse's girl from, I think it's the point of view of, is it from her or is it from the other guy? No, it's it's from, it's actually from the guy who gets Jesse's girl and then realizes that she's crazy. (laughs) It's a great song. That's great. I just mentioned that I had some musical references, which I didn't use in my top five list, but references that are not lyrical. Two that I like, the James Bond theme. Yeah. There's a particular chord progression. Sometimes musicians, I've heard musicians it's called the Secret Agent Man progression. It shows up in a lot of music. I've been teaching some songs this this semester. Feeling good by me, my uh, muse is one. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, Bare Naked Ladies. Brian Wilson by Bare Naked Ladies is one. Yeah. Keep your ears open. You'll hear it all over the place. And a last little one is um, one from Aerosmith. And I'll try not to talk at length about it, but they're big cheesy hit. I don't want to miss a thing. Yeah. The yeah. song that I don't yeah. like. Nobody yeah. likes it because they wrote it for the money. <laughs> let's be honest. But <laughs> but they slip a little quote from Dream On in the outro just so you remember their Aerosmith (laughs) if you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety check out the Spotify playlist that we've got in the show notes to hear them all All right, kids we're back and we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to Matt's heart (laughs) Criminally underrated guitarists. Tell me what you think criminally underrated means. There's a bunch of different ways you can go. Are they underrated because people think they're bad, but they're famous? Are they underrated because they're not well-known? 
Are they underrated? Because people don't even know they play guitar. But I didn't limit myself to just one. Okay. <laughs> I all went right. all over the place. How about you? Yeah, I just thought that these people are great guitarists and nobody puts them in a top five list ever. Okay. Well, I will say I don't think there is any such thing as an underrated guitarist. I think almost all guitarists are overrated. Everyone's always talking about, this guy's great. This guy's the best ever. Most of the things that these people <laughs> have done that's important are creating things. After they create it, almost anyone can reproduce it. The people who can't be reproduced, like Jimi Hendrix and Tom Morello and like those are the true greats yeah yeah okay so yeah. who's on your list well i got a long list but nothing i feel super passionate about but should we just go back and forth or should i throw out a few and you throw out a few i'll throw out a all few, right yeah. well i'll start with one uh who just is on my list just because most people don't even know he plays guitar but he is one of the greatest guitarists of all time and that's prince Prince has played two dozen instruments on his recordings. He can play anything or could play anything. Yeah. And when you watch a live performance of Prince, a lot of the time he's just singing or dancing or even playing drums or something else. He's an amazing guitarist. I think we've talked about him before. If not, we'll have to take you to Prince school. <laughs> yeah. No, I know we talked about him on an early episode, Best Multi-Instrumentalists. Yeah, we so, did. Yeah. So Prince is an incredible guitarist. And if he had only played guitar... He'd be considered one of the greatest guitarists of all time, but he did so much else that people forget he played guitar. He did a lot of other things, yeah. Oh, he did. The second one is The Edge. I know you love you too, and I don't know if he's on your list also, but... I don't think he's criminally underrated. I think he is. He's, he's the one on my list that I think he is criminally underrated okay. because he's not well regarded by people who think of guitarists as being flashy, as being virtuosic. What Edge is, uh, Jimmy Page called him, uh, I think he called him a sonic engineer or something like that. Yeah. Uh, a sonic architect. That's the word he used. What he does is he takes simple guitar tones, very simple parts, but he creates amazing things that we've never heard before using effects. And I love that. I think yeah. that's just another another tool in his toolbox, and he's created a whole new palette through the use of de particularly delays and choruses and all sorts of other things. So, and it's not like he can't play the intricate parts; he can. It's just that's not the way he chooses to express himself. Yeah. I don't know even know if he could. I mean, maybe he can, but I don't. That's not. I'm sure he probably yeah. could. You could be a great quarterback without being able to throw the ball 50 yards downfield. Matt, what matters is do you win championships? So, <laughs> you got right. a couple? Yeah. So I've got three on my list. Oh, I'll, I got. I got uh, eight more, so... You got eight more? <laughs> do your, okay. do your, I'll, do, <laughs> I'll do one, you do two. <laughs> okay, fine. I've got Vernon Reed from Living Color. Yep. Because, I A, I think they're a criminally underrated band. B, his... Uh, he, the guy's just an amazing rock guitarist that really nobody brings up in conversations exactly. about who's the best in the business. People only really know him if they are in really interested in guitar. Yeah. And if you aren't familiar with his work, go pull up Living Color's catalog on Spotify. You're not going to be disappointed. He was a jazz player before he got into, you know, starting the rock band Living Color, but he's got the chops to play anything he sets his mind to. He's got speed, virtuosity. He plays great rhythm. He's one of those guys that anything you throw at him, he can handle and he creates amazing parts and great music. Uh, I'll throw out three uh, rhythm guitarists who are underrated okay. for different reasons. Malcolm Young of ACDC. Everyone yeah. knows Angus Young. Nobody knows Malcolm. Those songs don't work without Malcolm. It's such a distinctive style of rhythm that he plays, and it's so steady, and it's so emphatic. It's just so much fun to play those parts. It's so much fun to listen to them. Those are the real backbone, even more than the drums and bass. Those are the real backbone of ACDC, the Malcolm Young rhythm guitar parts. Another one is John Lennon, who was pretty deficient as a musician until he met Paul McCartney, who taught him actually how to play real chords. And, <laughs> but John Lennon was a, you know, he didn't really care much about the guitar. He was 
famously sloppy about technique, and he just wasn't really what he was interested in. But he's actually quite a talented player and very steady. And there's a lot of guitar parts that are really hard to reproduce that he played. He's known one of those things that only a real hardcore guitarist would have ever dug deep enough to find. And a third one is Nile Rodgers. Yeah. We think of lead guitarist being the flashy one, but Nile Rodgers creates entire hooks, entire songs out of simple rhythms and just a few strings. Um, Super funky. Yeah. I mean, just he's the king of the rhythm riff. That's there's yeah. no, you know, I could have thrown Keith Richards in there too, very similar kind of profile, but I don't think he's underrated. Everyone talks about Keith Richards. So. <laughs> well, they talk about him because they're surprised he's still alive. <laughs> that too, yeah. <laughs> the second guy on my list is Lindsey Buckingham. Oh, he's on my Fleetwood list too. Mac. Yeah, you just, take him. I'm just amazed that as a lead guitarist, he doesn't use a pick. He finger picks everything. Yeah. And he plays really amazing lead lines. I mean, listen to Big Love, a song that he plays live when he was with Fleetwood Mac. He would play that live by himself. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like two guitars, yeah. but it's just him. He's a stunningly good technical guitarist. Yes. And inventive, very innovative. Too. Yeah. If you just listen to Big Love by itself, tell me he doesn't deserve to be in a top five list. He does. Uh, all, right. all right, I got a couple more. Dominic Miller is Sting's guitar player in yeah. uh, his solo career, and he creates amazing songs like Shape of My Heart, which everybody knows, but nobody knows his name. So he's just one of those guys that really deserves more recognition. Sting has a way of getting the attention. Overpowering. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't even know if he means to, but Dominic Miller is, is his secret weapon yeah. as a solo artist. Definitely. Uh, I'll throw another one out. Keith Urban, who is known as a singer and known as a good-looking guy. and I, He's actually an, a, an enormously talented guitarist. It's just, it kind of gets lost in the same way that Prince's you know, Prince's skill does because he's got other attributes too. And in that same category is Bruce Springsteen, who everybody knows as a singer and a songwriter and a huge personality and a, a, a prophet of rock. He's actually a pretty good guitarist, Mo- even though he's got yeah. Niles Lofgren and uh, Little Steven, Steven and... Another great guitarist whose name I'm blanking on in his, <laughs> even though he's got this enormous touring band with these incredible guitarists, Bruce actually still plays most of the lead. Yeah. I got one more category of guys I'll wait for after your last guy. Okay, my last guy, if you guys have been listening to this podcast, you know who I'm going to pick. Alex Lifeson of Rush. Mm, fair. Yeah. He should be in almost everybody's top five list. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to give you a list of songs you need to go listen to. La Via Strangiato. The Spirit of Radio, Driven, YYZ, The Analog Kid, Anthem, and Limelight. You go listen to all those, listen to the solos on those songs, and tell me he's not deserving. Totally. His soloing is incredible. His rhythm playing is sublime. And the man can do anything he wants to with a guitar. I think he gets overshadowed by Neil and Getty, but he's just as good as they are at his instrument. And a lot of times those guys get put in top five lists and he should be there as well. All right. So my last category, just go back and listen to episode, was it 25, 26, where we talked about uh, best female instrumentalists. And I mentioned that there's a whole bunch of incredibly innovative female guitarists, including Annie Clark, better known as St. Vincent, and um, Teresa Wayman and Emily Kokel from Warpaint. And I can't remember who else I brought up in that episode. Romy Madsen from the XX. Just listen to that. They're all underrated because nobody knows what they're doing or who they are, or they don't realize they're the ones playing guitar, or they don't realize how incredible those guitar parts are. Uh, I throw those in there too. I'm I forgot to mention when you said Lindsey Buckingham, I think two other people who fit that category are James Taylor and Paul Simon, people who are known for their voice, for their songwriting. People don't realize how innovative and creative and technical their guitar playing is too. (laughs) 
Seth and I have a favor to ask. If you are enjoying Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast, please do us a solid and go ahead and share it with friends. Also, if you rate and review it on whatever podcasting platform you listen, it will get to other people and that'd be good. We want more people to hear about this stuff that we think is so cool. So share, rate, review, and thank you. All right, Rockers, we're back, and you know what time it is. It's 60 seconds of insanity. It's the one-minute matchup. <laughs> All right, Matt, what are we doing today? Today we're talking about remastered albums. Good idea or not? You got the stopwatch? Should I make it more dramatic? Like, best idea since sliced bread or spawn of hell? I mean... I- <laughs> <laughs> yes, I got the stopwatch. You want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. All right, here you go. Ready? Yeah. I'm pressing the button in three, two, one, go. Okay, so... What's the definition of remastering anyway? Uh, It's taking the original recording and doing the process of post-production and adding in compression and equalization and stuff like that. So, I think it really depends on what you're doing when you remaster it. If you clean up the songs so that they're clearer than it was on the original released recording, and it doesn't change the song, you know, the one that we've been listening to for the last however long, uh, then I'm all for it. But if you actually change the source material or mess with it enough, then call it what it is, a remix. Um, but, you know, these remastered albums, sometimes the artists add in extra songs that were recorded at the time that the original album was and that weren't released, and possibly some live tracks. So those can actually make the remixed, or sorry, not remixed, remastered album worthwhile. So I'm going to give a thumbs up to remastered albums if they do it correctly. 59 seconds. Well done. Not bad. Okay. All right. Hand over the stopwatch. Matt, your 60 seconds start now. 99 times out of 100, they're an abomination. Like, really, really (laughs) awful stuff. Okay. Uh, People get too hung up on sound quality. Songs do a lot of things for us. Music does a lot of things for us. People are imperfect. Music is imperfect. Yeah, if you focus so much on the sound that you're not that you're closing yourself off to the emotion, to the memory, to the meaning, you're cutting out a lot of the experience. Um, most of us grew up listening to the same songs, and I always find when I go back, and sometimes you can't avoid it on Spotify, hearing a remastered track of something I've literally listened to a thousand times since I was a kid is not at all satisfying. We get too hung up on the stuff that doesn't matter. Um, you can hear errors on these songs. You can hear imperfections. You can hear like things that really wouldn't, you know, today wouldn't pass muster. But that's okay. They are what they are, uh, with a very few exceptions. And uh, you know, when you're really changing the meaning of the song, it's never a good idea. Han shot first. <laughs> 50, Fifty-eight <laughs> seconds. Han shot first. Sorry, that, that's an example, right? It's not music, but like you know, why, why, go back and change. No, was, no I was going to say the one exception that I can think of that actually is worthwhile is "Let It Be," which was where okay. Phil Spector added these dense, layered string arrangements without the Beatles' knowledge. But that's a remix. Exactly. That's why I didn't say it in my it's, thing. It's I agree not with a you. remastering. I agree with you. I agree with you. So that's not a remastering. The the one thing, the one album that I think of when somebody says, oh, you remastered it, mm-hmm. is Vapor Trails by Rush. Mm-hmm. Because when they originally did the master, which was they took the tape and they did the compression to it, when the album came out, uh, it had too much compression on it. 
And when they put it through the process to get it to the CD, it didn't sound the way that it did on the tape or digital or whatever it was they recorded it to. So Rush went back and they called it a remix, but it's not. They took the original source material and when they processed it to make the master, I'm sure they put compression on it, but not as much as was on the original. And you can hear the original performance so much better on the, I'm going to call it a remaster, even though they call it a remix. You can hear it so much better on the second album. I think if that's what you're going to do is to go through and clean up the actual sound of what they recorded, if the process screwed it up in the first place, then yeah, go ahead and go for it. If you go through and re-record or you put something extra in there that's a remix, I'm totally on that with you. There are records that I've been listening to since I was like, I don't know, 12. And I don't want to give away how old I am, but that's a lot of years. <laughs> Five days younger than me. <laughs> or four. So, yeah. um, and when you hear the added weird thing, it just throws you. It's jarring. It's like hitting a pothole when you're driving. I'm totally on board with you on that one. It's like that, you, no, don't do that. You, you make a good point, but I, I still don't agree. Even for you, even your example, if you listen to that Rush album when you were a certain age and that's the Rush album that's in your head, there are memories, emotions. There are experiences associated with that. When you change the music, you're going to take away some of that. I mean, and, but it doesn't. And, hold on, hold on, hold on, now it doesn't second. change the music, though. But it does. I I hear remasters differently. You make this instrument louder. You take out that imperfection. You make this balance different. It does change the music. It changes it for me when I hear remastered tracks where there's no difference in the notation or the tempo or the the instrumentation or anything. It still doesn't sound the same to me, and still doesn't bring the same experiences back. And a lot of times, remastering is to take out errors and errors are what make it great uh, you know one of my f- favorite examples is on satisfaction you can hear keith richards step on his fuzz pedal to play the riff you can hear that yeah it's like well don't take that out i love that now that i heard it which i never did i listened to the song a thousand times i never noticed it once i finally noticed it now if you take it out, i'm like wait a minute where's my click i like i like that sound yeah that's part of it for me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can agree to disagree i don't know we disagree that much but. Hey, rockers, it's that time of the year again, the best time of the year. Rock You is taking over La Javelle, part of Bercy Beaucoup, for our annual Rock You En Scène Festival. Every Rock You artist, every Rock You band, kids, teens, adults, solo artists, and even the instructors on stage, June 17th, 18th, and 21st. Go to our website for details. So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? (laughs) Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr. Extra credit, the Rock You podcast is brought to you with support from our partners at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble Records is your one-stop shop for all music production in Paris. Everything from the composition to the creative side, to the recording and engineering, to the mixing and mastering, to the distribution and publication and publicity. Check them out at www.bigpebblerecords.com. And of course, you will hear lots of Rock You musicians on that label. Extra Credit, the Rock U podcast is a production of Rock U.
expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinkley. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock You is a non-profit association Loire 1901, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>